Okay, so first off, let me thank everyone for coming. Um, Roundtable is very proud to present Professor Evan Jones. He's a professor of entrepreneurship, and he's also the founder of TSI Soccer. Um, this discussion is part of the Roundtable student-faculty discussion series, and um, we'll be recording this discussion and posting it online as a podcast in case anyone wants to listen to it later on. Um, so the structure of this, this event is going to be um, Professor Jones is going to talk about his experience for a while, and then after that, we're going to open up the floor to questions. So if you have any questions, ask after he finishes his speech. And then um, we'll see what happens from there. All right. Thanks, guys. Um, I guess I'll just give you a couple minutes about my background and then kind of leave it open to questions, and you can kind of go different directions. I've done a bunch of different things, and so you can decide what kind of most interests you, I guess. Um, I graduated from Duke in 87, so a long time ago, but I was here. Um, I actually played tennis on the tennis team here. Uh, I was an economics major, so kind of know where you guys are a little bit. Um, then I went into investment banking for two years, so I was an investment banking analyst on Wall Street. Um, I did that for maybe a little over two years. Um, I was in the mergers and acquisitions department. Um, after while I was doing that, um, I had always had a desire to start my own business, um, and so I got together with uh, one of my good friends at Duke, um, who was on the soccer team actually. Um, and we'd always talked about starting this business that was a tennis and soccer um, catalog to sell equipment. At that time, there wasn't a lot of equipment available. It's not quite as plentiful, um, wasn't as plentiful as now at Dick's and places like that. Um, and so we, we had talked about that a lot, but really hadn't done anything about it. Um, so while I was doing my investment banking thing, he actually, um, he turned pro playing soccer, but you don't make, don't make much, too much money doing that. So he kind of stepped back and, you know, decided he needed to do something. I decided I wanted to start a business, so we got together and started the business. Um, so we raised money, and as we go, you, you know, you guys can decide. I'll give you kind of a quick sketch, and you can decide what things you want me to delve into. But we raised um, a couple hundred thousand dollars to start the business. The business was um, basically tennis and soccer catalog. We had a retail store in Brightly Square when we first started. We had a screen printing business, which I do a whole bunch of different things, um, most of which didn't work after the first year. They were just not successful at all. Um, so after the first year, we had a lot of problems, you know, had to decide what really was going well. One thing that was going well was soccer mail order. And so we basically uh, started to focus on that, um, worked on that for a number of years, grew the company uh, very nicely. We were in the Inc. 500 for growing, for, uh, growing the company um, a couple of years in a row. And after about eight years, um, we had grown it to... Uh, about $35 million in sales, and we had 16 stores, and I ended up selling it at that point to uh, a company called Delia's, which is a uh, kind of a teen girls fashion um, catalog in stores. Um, they then sold it to a company, I don't know if you've ever seen a Eurosport catalog, but basically, if you've seen a Eurosport catalog, it's basically, that's what, it, what it, exactly what it looks like, what it used to look like. Um, so, you know, I, I sold the company at that point, and then I started teaching here at Duke. Um, so I've been teaching here for about 10 years now. Um, and then I also started a hedge fund about six years ago. So now I run a hedge fund um, that is uh, just mostly small cap stocks um, and is, you know, very, very volatile at this point because of the bailout. So that's also another area of questions if you guys want to talk about uh, the market and the, the current bailout and all that kind of stuff. So I'm very involved in that at this point. Um, so my background's been in business, both as an entrepreneur, um, running the business and growing it from nothing up to about 400 employees and um, $35 million in sales. And then really in the last five or six years has been, I've been teaching, but primarily running a hedge fund, um, which is a lot of you know, financial type uh, analysis. Um, so no, maybe I'll, I'll just ask you guys where you want me to kind of go with it, whatever types of questions you want me to kind of delve in deeper. Because um, I could talk more about the, my hedge fund or I could talk more about, um, you know, the entrepreneurial experience, whatever you guys would like. Sure. What's a hedge fund? Okay, so a hedge fund is, well, first of all, a hedge fund can be a lot of different things. Um, so there are lots and lots of different types of hedge funds. Um, the, the element that goes across them all to be called a hedge fund is that you basically collect investors' money and rather than being paid a set fee, you get a fee and you get 20% of the profits that you make for them. So if you give me $100 and I can return $120 to you, I'm gonna take 20% of the $20 I made for you. And so I'm basically being incented based on how well I do for you. 
after that, hedge funds can mean lots of different things. They can be basically, they can invest in real estate, they can invest in commodities, they can invest in foreign exchange, they can invest in you know regular stocks, bonds, whatever they want. Our the hedge fund that I run is small cap equities, primarily focused in the um, consumer sector. The other thing about hedge funds is most hedge funds also have, um, they own um, equities long, and they also short, which means they expect stocks to go down. Um, so we have a certain, we have about 30 stocks that we own that we expect to go up in value, and we have about 30 stocks that we own that we expect to go down in value. Um, so you're shorting stocks as well, so we'll make money. When the market goes down, those 30 stocks will probably go down as well. Um, so that's kind of a, a, a generic description, but there are lots of different types of hedge funds, so it's a, it's a large kind of encompassing term. Yep. Have you been affected much by the ban? Uh, by the ban on short selling? Um, we actually have been affected, but not directly. We don't do a lot of financials. Um, so the financial companies were banned from um, having short selling. Um, we didn't have a lot of financial exposure, so we didn't do that. But kind of as a repercussion from that, almost all stocks are much tougher to short than they were before. So when you, uh, when you want to short a stock, if you just go, if you want to buy a stock long, you basically just go and go into the markets and you buy, buy the stock. If you want to short a stock, you actually have to get what's called borrow, which means you have to find somebody else. In essence, you're selling the stock and with an obligation to buy it back at some time in the future. So your hope is that you sell it at $10 and you know that you have an obligation to buy it back at some point and you hope to buy it back at $5. So you hope that it comes down. So you basically reverse the trade. Um, where usually you buy a stock, you don't actually have to ever sell it, but you expect to sell it at a higher price. So when you short, you have to find somebody else who's going to give you what they call borrow, which means you have to find somebody else um, out there, and the investment banks do this for you, um, that has shares. And when they banned the short selling, it made it very tough for any hedge funds to go out there and get shares. Um, so certain companies you couldn't get shares on. So it affected us, but not directly, I guess, is a, is a kind of quick answer. Um, yep? Well, I guess it's kind of a very dollar question, but um, how do you see the jail affecting the financial market or even um, I think the bailout was very necessary because you really had Wall Street shutting down from a lending perspective. What happens is in all banking situations, <coughs> there has to be an element of faith in the banking institutions. Um, that faith was lost over the last year or so with the problems with the mortgages. All the, and I guess there are two problems to be associated when you kind of think about it. One is that the mortgages, the banks were losing money on mortgages, and when they were losing that money, that was making them insolvent. Now, the reason it was making them insolvent was that they had leveraged, uh, by leverage, I mean they borrowed money to buy these mortgages at a very, very high rate. And so when the mortgages started coming down a little bit, they started losing money. And the reason was they never expected real estate to come down. It hadn't come down in the past. And when it started to come down, that threw all their models off and honestly they got just way over levered. Then what happens is people start seeing banks go insolvent, so they get scared and everybody starts taking their money out of that bank. Well the way the bank bought the mortgages in the first place is <clears throat> they collected um, deposits from people and they're holding people's assets, so they used those monies to go buy these mortgages. Well, and that's how they make their money. They basically take people's money, the, the traditional bank around here will take your deposits, they put them in a checking account. Then they'll go lend them to someone else. They'll give you 3% for your checking account or to your savings account. They'll lend them to a local business and the business will pay 7%. They'll make the difference, the 3 to the 7%, right? That's all fine and they never expect everyone to come at the same time and say, I want my deposit back. Because if they did, they'd have to go to the companies that they lent the money to and tell them all, give us our money back. But they can't give it back because those companies have spent it on equipment and buildings and things like that, and they can't get the cash out of it. So when you have faith lost, everybody starts saying, I want to go get my money, then the banks have to try to pull in these loans. One, they can't pull them all in. Whatever they can pull in, it was also hurting businesses, and it creates just a very bad cycle. So I think it was something that they had to do to bail out the banks. And a lot of people have talked about, well, they're bailing out Wall Street and they're helping these rich guys and all that type, uh, type of stuff, which they are helping out Wall Street and they are helping out some of the people that have made money on Wall Street. But if they don't, it's much, much worse for the regular consumer. 
So if they didn't do it, it would have been the type of situation where you would have gone to try to buy a car and you wouldn't have been able to get a loan because the banks would just say, we can't loan any more money because all our deposits are being pulled out and there's no money available for us to loan. So you wouldn't be able to get money for car loans, you wouldn't get money for student loans, all sorts of things like that, that uh, you, know, you need to basically keep the economy going. And especially businesses, businesses could no longer get money. So if I'm a small business owner and I need to borrow $100,000 to buy some new inventory to keep my business growing, I just can't do it at that point. Um, and so the repercussions would have been very long. I, th I think it'll still take a while to work out, but the government had to do something at that point. So, yep. Is the bailout a loan from the government to the banks? Yeah, good question. Um, the bailout is actually not a loan. What the, what the bailout is, is the government is taking approximately $700 billion, and they are going to all the individual banks, and they are buying from them the mortgages that the banks are holding. So the banks were, had bought these mortgages, they were holding them, the mortgages were losing value. The banks couldn't trade them to each other and sell them to each other because no one out there was willing to buy them. So the government's going and saying, we'll buy that mortgage from you, and now you have our cash. Which now means that the, the bank is stable because it has cash rather than these mortgages. And so what the government's going to end up with is $700 billion worth of mortgage loans. Now, in actuality, that's not like a complete loss. And people talk about they may make money out of the government could end up making money out of it because they're buying these $700 billion uh, mortgages at a steep discount. So it's probably $1.4 trillion worth of mortgages that they're buying for $700 billion. They're buying it for a discount because there's an expectation that a bunch of them do default, that people don't pay on their mortgages. But no one knows exactly what the default rate's going to be. And if the economy stabilizes and things get better, then the default rate won't be that high and potentially three years from now, the government will take those $700 billion worth of mortgages and sell them back out into the markets for you know, maybe even more than they bought them for. Um, and what they'll be worth will be dependent upon how high the default rate is on them from the mortgages. Um, because a mortgage is, when you buy someone's mortgage, they're supposed to pay you for 30 years. But the banks, when they value them, what they do basically is they say, okay, what are the chances that this group of mortgages defaults? And they look at the credit out in the United States and unemployment and all those things, and they say, well, it's a 5% chance, and so I'll, I'll assume I'm going to lose that much, and I'll pay you this much for the loan. Well, if it goes down to a 10% actuality of people defaulting, then you got a bad deal when you, um, when you basically bought that mortgage. So they're taking them off their books and giving them cash, and so now the banks have cash, which basically stabilizes them and makes them sturdier. So now when you're trying to pay off your mortgage, you're sending money to the government? You're actually sending money. Well, now you know you won't write your check to the U.S. Yeah. Uh, you know, the U.S. government, but the government will be the ones that actually own it. So, so you may, um, you know, write your check to GMAC, but that check will, you know, end up at the government. Um, so, and the issue with mortgages all along was, and you guys probably haven't bought a house, you haven't gone through this, but if you go buy a house, a mortgage broker gets you into a mortgage, and you want to buy this three hundred thousand dollar house, and they say, okay. I'll lend you $250,000. They create the mortgage. They get paid a fee for creating that mortgage, and then they take it and they actually sell it to a bank. Now, that bank often sells it to another bank, and they basically created all sorts of derivative instruments for breaking up that mortgage in different ways that people then invested in. So where your check goes is you know, maybe a 1% chance that it's going to the person that actually, like you sat there and like filled out all the papers with. That person sold off that mortgage after that. Um, so, yep. What do you think are the advantages or disadvantages of what like Ireland and Germany did by guaranteeing all deposits as opposed to the U.S. where they just raised it? Um, I think that in um, guaranteeing them is, a, is an okay idea, but I don't know that it was going to stabilize them enough because I'm not sure that anybody was going to be comfortable enough to let that keep going. I mean, the big thing the government is trying to do is basically restore faith yeah. and get these institutions to go back out there and lend, lend money. If they guaranteed these mortgages, that may have made the runs on these banks stop, and it may have made the banks more comfortable that they weren't going to go out of business because they had a guarantee, but it would not have created any more cash for them to go out and lend. And they would have been, having gone through this, they would have been very leery to lend money again. Whereas if they get this cash from the government, where the government's saying, okay, now you've got cash, go make money with it. The way they make money with it is to lend it to people. 
And so, what the, and so the guarantees, I'm not sure, really get them back lending again. They make them stable, so they're not going to disappear, but they don't actually get them back lending again. And very big, well-established companies um, were having trouble getting loans. And they need the loans to just keep business going, to buy inventory, to buy new equipment, that type of thing. And it's a very, it's a very bad cycle that, that happens when if I own a business and I need a million dollars to buy um, some new equipment and I can't get that loan, then what I do is I don't hire new employees. And then those new employees don't have jobs. And when they don't have jobs, they don't go buy things. So when they don't go buy things, they don't you know, help the economy. And when they don't have a job, they don't pay taxes. And so you just have this very bad cycle of, of how it can occur. And then even worse, the banks were pulling in loans and kind of saying, we lent you this million dollars, we want it back now. And the business was saying, well, you told me I could have five years to pay it back. And they're saying, no, but we need it back now. And then that makes the businesses actually go sell something they didn't want to sell, fire a bunch of people, and you just create this very bad cycle. So that's so I think the guarantees were an okay idea, but they, they needed to do more. Because they'd almost told the mar markets that they were willing to do that, and it wasn't kind of enough. Yeah. Do you think is there a better alternative to the bail plan? I know some people can talk about equity injection, like what Warren Buffett's doing. Yeah, so, so it's, it's a fine line. I guess while I'm saying that it's necessary that they do this stuff, one of the big concerns is that if you believe in a capitalistic um, society and a capitalistic environment, you really don't want the government involved in this kind of stuff. So at one level, they're buying these mortgages and giving these banks cash, and that, that is involvement, and that's you know nationalization of, of some of these mortgages. If they were to actually take equity investments in Goldman Sachs or equity investments in some of these other banks, now that's really a step beyond even what they're doing as far as stepping outside the capitalistic structure. Because then the question is, I have to think about all the things that come up. So now, let's say that the government ends up owning 20% of Goldman Sachs. Well, you know, what happens when the government basically needs to do government uh, bonds financing? Do they tell the municipalities, well, you should use Goldman Sachs, we own 20% of them? Well, that basically just destroyed the capitalistic environment. Why should Goldman Sachs get that business when, you know, just because the government owns it, because they had to bail them out? And then, you know, compensation for executives. Does the government get involved and say, well, you know, the president only makes $400,000, so the CEO of Goldman Sachs that we're 20% owner of, he can't make $20 million. Well, maybe he doesn't need to make $20 million, but if Goldman Sachs wants to be competitive with other CEOs on the street, they need to pay him more than $400,000 because that just won't get him anybody. So, and then, you know, there are all sorts of different votes that need to occur that the government would have to be involved in, in making votes of how the companies run. And you know, one, that just there's all sorts of conflicts of interest. And two, quite honestly, the government hasn't run things real well in a lot of cases, so do you really want them running your banks? Um, so the question is, what, how much does the government absolutely have to do to keep things going and working without going too far and actually nationalizing the banks and having Bank of America not be Bank of America, but be the Bank of America that it actually is owned by? Um, the United States, that comes here into a socialist economy at that point. So um, it, it's a very fine line for as far as they can go. And their goal is, I think, to go as far as they have to to make things work, but not go any further than that. So even if the stock market keeps coming down, that's, you know, they're not trying to basically make sure the stock market goes up. They're just trying to make sure, and they're not trying to make sure that we just keep growing and never turn back at all. We can stabilize, we can go into a recession. But things just can't become a massive depression, a massive fall apart. How do they stop that? And that's where it was headed at one point. So, what more can the government do at this point? Well, today they started actually getting involved. Each step of the way, they're kind of trying to do financial things. One of the things they do is they keep trying to put money into the system. So, what they can do is actually print money, put it into the system, make cheap money for banks because banks um, can banks can make new loans two ways. One, they get deposits from people like you, put them in their bank, and loan that money out. Two, they can borrow money from the government at what's called a Fed window or a window where they go and they can borrow it for, say, 2 or 3%. And then they can go make that loan to someone for 8%. So if the government is there, if, if the government's basically not putting a lot of money in, then they're basically trying to slow things down a little bit because they don't want the banks borrowing money from them and then loaning them to somebody else. But at this point, what they're trying to do is just say, here's all the money we can possibly give you. So they're putting a lot of money into the system um, to try to get banks to do that. Now, a lot of the banks are still scared because they're still going out and the economy's not working. Even though I can get it from you at 3% and lend it at 8%, what if this person I lend it to at 8% defaults on me? You know, then I, 
it, you know, if you were guaranteed to get the 8%, of course they'd do it, but there's always that risk of default by the person you're lending it to. And the banks now, having taken so many loans, are very scared to do things like that. Um, they also got into the commercial paper market, which is lending to the businesses the government did today. So there are things they can do, but every time they kind of take a step too close to what would be a socialist economy, then things can get scary at that point. So, yep. But also, why would the banks feel scared if, you know, oh, well, they bail me out this time. If this happens again, I'll just get another bailout. Right. Well, two reasons, I guess. One is they can't know that the government's going to bail them out. And that's a big concern the government has is, you know, if we just bail people out, well, then they're going to take very large risk exposures because they're going to say, well, what the hell, I'll get bailed out if I have problems. Let me, let me try for a home run here and just lend anybody, right? So that's, that's a real concern of the government's. And that's one of the reasons probably why the government let Lehman Brothers go bankrupt. So I don't know if you follow enough, but Lehman Brothers is an investment bank that did go bankrupt. And one of the reasons I think the government probably let it go bankrupt is because they said, we can't save everybody. And Lehman Brothers was a big bank. It employed like 28,000 people. It was a multi-billion dollar bank. But they said, you know, if you go bankrupt, you go bankrupt. And when it went bankrupt, that scared a lot of people. And a lot of people were scared they had their assets frozen there and all sorts of things went on. And that really scared the markets. So they, the, the, gov the companies don't know the government will come in and do it. Um, also, I guess the other side of it is when the government comes in and bails somebody out, they support the debt underneath the... Um, the institution, but the shareholders, the equity holders, actually have always lost all their money. So Bear Stearns got bear, um, bailed out by the government back in March. But if you had stock in Bear Stearns, which was trading you know, close to $100 at one point, it basically went bankrupt. And so you, as the stockholders lost all their money. The debt holders and the people that had their money at Bear Stearns, they were okay because the government walked, stepped in and said, if you had money at Bear Stearns, or if, Bear, uh, um, if you had loans to Bear Stearns, we'll make sure they're okay. But if you were an equity holder, a stockholder in Bear Stearns, you went bankrupt. And the same thing happened at a AIG. So they bailed AIG out, but the equity holders went bankrupt. Um, Lehman went totally bankrupt. So you do get bailed out, but your equity holders, which are all your shareholders, they, go, they lose all their money. So the difference between bankrupt is you can't pay your debts. Being ba bailed out means, but your, your equity holders lose all their money. Being bailed out means you do get your debts paid, but the equity holders still lose all their money. So it's, you know, maybe a fine line there, but. Is there any fear of uh, any kind of inflation with the government putting as much money in? So, that's, so the, the big fear is that by putting so much money into the system, that creates too much loans and too much growth and that can create inflation. Now, the reason that people aren't that worried about that right now, and that, that's always a concern, so the Fed basically is just always watching that. The, re the reason people aren't that worried about that right now is that the economy is slowing. When the economy slows, that naturally slows inflation. Um, and consumers are a big part of this economy, and consumers at this point have been quite scared by what's going on. And when consumers get scared, they pull back. So if you look at uh, I think Toyota sales were down 35%, and BMW sales were down 30%. CarMax, it's, you know, used car dealer, their same store sales year over year were down 12%. So people aren't buying cars. Um, you know, people, uh, you know, I don't know what, you know, jewelry sales are, but my guess is they're not <laughs> buying jewelry, they're not buying all sorts of different things. When that happens, people get laid off. And you can see all sorts of news articles now about people being laid off left and right. When people get laid off, you know, then they really stop spending if they've been laid off, and that just creates an even worse cycle. Um, so that's what slows down the economy. Yep? Is there a chance of a stagflation um, I guess, you know, at this point, what's, you know, I'm not just kind of being very involved in it and kind of seeing it day to day. It's, it's one of the rare occasions where I've seen where at this point, anything is there's a really chance of anything to happen. It's so wide up in the air, and it is so crazy. Um, I mean, there's really never been a, a time in U.S. history other than the Great Depression where you had banks this size go bankrupt and where you had this total stoppage of people, uh, banks loaning and where you had the kind of environment you have right now. I mean, it really is the crash of 1987, the dot-com bubble in 2001, or not, you know, this is worse than that. And so it is, it is pretty bad. So at this point, you know, Deflation, inflation, stagflation, nobody really knows exactly what's going to happen. 
Um, and even Paulson and Bernanke, who basically are right in there, they're doing whatever they think they can, but they really, you know, they'll go in front of Congress and say, you know, we really don't know what's going to happen here. We're trying to stabilize things the best we can. The best scenario at this point is things just slow down a little bit, faith returns to the system. We almost surely will be in a recession for a couple of years, but then we kind of slowly work out of it, and then that would be, you know, the most positive. Um, you know, it, globally, I guess the other thing that may help us a little bit is that globally you're also seeing this kind of an economic recession and slowdown. The global markets are getting killed. So when big investors of large pools of money start to have problems and they look at the entire world, which is where they can put their money anywhere in the world, and they say, wow, the U.S. is having problems, but you know what? So is Germany and Europe and Japan and the Chinese stock market is down 60 plus percent or something this year the money is actually coming back to the U.S. because they're saying, well, the whole world's a problem here economically, so the U.S. is actually the safest place to put it, even though it's kind of a mess. And so that's actually you know, helping, and that may continue to occur, and so that could really help us as investment dollars come in from other places of the world. Because when people look at it and they say, you know, I was making great money investing in India, but gosh, the market down there is, is, is down 40% and things look really unstable in India. Well, they look unstable in the U.S., but the U.S. is inherently more stable than India is. And so money is coming back into the U.S. now, where it was going to emerging countries the last couple of years, just in kind of general large flows. Um, so we'll see, but it's definitely up in the air, so there's no real right answer to it, I guess. Just with the bailout government involvement, everything, what does this mean for your hedge fund? Well, my... <laughs> um, a lot of hedge funds are going out of business. My hedge fund is relatively stable because, it's, one, it's relatively small, and we only have a few kind of institutional kind of long-term investors. Um, we're, we're losing money. We're down, uh, you know, about 20% this year, which is, you know, very bad. Um, but it's not, I guess there are, are hedge funds out there that are just exploding, that are basically losing everything. Um, and the reason we're not losing that much is because we're very, I mean, 20% is a lot, but the reason we don't really have a chance to lose a whole lot more than that is that we're very fundamentally driven. We don't use a lot of leverage. So there are a lot of hedge funds out there that are using a lot of leverage, so they're borrowing money to even buy more. So if they have $100 million in assets, they're borrowing money so that they're actually buying $200 million worth of stock. So if you own $2 million worth of stock and it comes down 10%, you lost $20 million, but you only had $100 million. So you, now you're down to $80 million. And so you only have to lose 50%. If you basically, if you have $100 million, you buy $200 million worth of stocks, and you lose 50%, well, you lost all your $100 million. So leverage, the more leverage, and, and that's kind of a tame example, because there are people out there using four <coughs> times leverage. Well, if you use four times leverage, you only have to go down 25%, and you lost all your $100 million. So by not using leverage and, and pulling back pretty hard when we saw problems going, we basically, even though the market keeps going down, we're not going down as much as, as it goes down. But um, one of the pr reasons you're seeing the stock market come down very drastically the last few days is because lots and lots of hedge funds are having problems, and the investors that give them money are calling them saying, I want my money back. And so when they have someone call and say, I want my money back, then they have to start selling their stocks and so, so they can give this person their cash. So the people that invest in hedge funds are, you know, large endowments and pension plans and um, kind of large family offices and things. So if the North Carolina, you know, we don't have the North Carolina Teachers Fund uh, money, but if the North Carolina Teachers Fund had money with us, gets scared and calls and says, we want our, you know, let's say they gave us $50 million, we want our $50 million back, then we would have to sell $50 million worth of whatever we owned to send them a check for that, that amount of money, right? And so that, when you have that going across the whole country, that just creates all this supply and this downward pressure on the prices of stocks as people sell. And that's kind of what you're seeing left and right. Um, and maybe that slows, maybe it doesn't, but what happens when people get scared and the stock market starts dropping, most people, and it's probably the right thing to do, say, how do I fix this? I go to cash. Let me get cash back. And so, you know, that's just the natural thing to do. I know how I won't lose money. I'll get cash, and I won't invest in any of this stuff. Well, that's fine, but just that process, that thought process makes everybody sell. And it, that's how it gets worse and worse. Um, and it stops people from making other investments. So it's, you know, it gets very difficult. Um, 
Yep. So if you didn't want to invest your money, where is the best place to put it right now? Um, you know, I'd say that long term, the best place is probably still stocks. But you have to have a very strong stomach and you have to not use the, and not have to need the money. Because if you invest right now and you need the money in three months, I definitely couldn't tell you that the market's not down another 10% from where it is today, right? And if you need the money, you're going to have to take it out. Now, if you know you don't need the money for five years and you're willing to kind of basically say, you know, it won't bother me to see my money down 10, 20% um, over the next couple of years and then hopefully it'll get back going, then I think stocks are a good place. Um, a lot of it does come into psychology, you know, how people handle losing money and can they handle that and can they watch it. Um, and as a hedge fund manager, you know, one of the first things I learned was you had to figure out where your pain threshold was and where you would basically make bad decisions. Because when you get in too much pain and you're like, I can't take this anymore, you make a decision that you wouldn't make rationally. And so if you've done all sorts of work on a given company and you know the company really well and you own the stock, um, but you're down 20% and that's a number that's just overwhelming to you psychologically, you'll sell and you'll probably sell it exactly the worst time. And so you have to try to figure out where that is. And for different people, that's different places. Um, and so you know, our, our like whole thing at our hedge fund is basically to try to do lots and lots of fundamental work on a company. So we talk to the management teams, and we go to their trade shows, and we know their products and their customers and all that kind of stuff, and we know their balance sheet to get really, to gain what we call conviction, conviction that when things go really bad, we'll know whether the company truly has a problem or whether it's just something short-term that they'll work their way out of. Um, and, so that's, and so we'll make the right decision by, by doing all that work, but that work kind of allows you to kind of stay in it. Um, and that's, you know, then it's just kind of a question of whether you can kind of handle the, the downside. Um, yep? Other than stocks, what about commodities um, I mean, I think ETFs are a good idea for anyone who's not actively like following companies and, and you know working on knowing the company. So if you don't have either someone to manage your money who is going out there and working on the companies and doing research, and you're not going to try to do it yourself, then I think ETFs are a good answer for people. Um, but I think people do with ETFs, you do have to recognize that you want to diversify even among those, and that you can have an ETF that does all emerging countries, you can have an ETF that does you know, big cap companies, small cap companies, and you want to diversify amongst those different types of ETFs. Um, commodities are definitely not something that any, you know, individual retail investor should play with because it's just wildly volatile. Um, commodity ETFs? Well, commodity ETFs, <laughs> you, you've basically, you know, you've tried, to, you've tried to even it out a little bit more, but it's still going to be volatile. I mean, all these things, the question is, you know, how much volatility can you handle? And so I, when I say no one should do it who hasn't, like, who's not an experienced person. Um, if you have money that you would take to Vegas, fine, that's, that's money to go play the commodity markets with. But recognize that you know, that's the kind of game, gambling you're doing unless you're doing it really professionally and you're full-time on it, you're looking at it. Um, Boone Pickens, who's one of the greatest commodities investors of all time, um, is down over a billion and a half dollars this year. And you know, he, he recognizes it, you know, he's played, he was, so, so his, the swings in his fund are just wild swings. Swings that, you know, talking about pain threshold or pain that I could never handle. I wouldn't be able to have a fund. That, but he was up, you know, by, I think his fund is down 69% or something this year. But it was up 300% at one time. So you just have these massive swings going up and down. And you just have to be willing to kind of handle that. And so you have to know kind of the ins and outs. It's also pretty complicated if you start trying to trade commodities as far as the different lots and the different futures and different months. Um, that you actually have. So I, I definitely wouldn't tell any kind of individual investors to do that. Now, my opinion long term on commodities is that they probably do go up because I do believe in peak oil that we found almost all the oil we have in this world. Um, and we know where the reserves are and it'll keep coming for another 20 years, but there aren't any new great finds of massive amounts of oil that we don't know where they are. And all the analysts have figured out how many bit millions of barrels of oil we can produce a day with the finds we've had so far. And it's about 85 million barrels of oil a day. We use 87 million barrels of oil a day. So we're $2 million, 2 million barrels into the reserves every day. Now we've got quite a number of reserves, so that means we can go 20 years, but we have hit the level where 
our demand for oil is much about right where our supply is what we can supply on a daily basis. So it doesn't mean we're out yet, but it means that we're using as much as we can uh, we can create. Um, and so I don't see where how oil is going to come back meaningfully. It can certainly come back to $75 from $100, but it's not coming back to $30 again, which is where it was only two years ago. So the only thing I would say is hopefully 20 years from now, I hope oil is $5 a barrel because I hope we've figured out other ways to get around and we don't use any oil. But in the near term, because no matter how much you believe in natural gas or solar or whatever else there is, um, we can't transfer that quickly in the next three years. It just won't happen, especially the way the government's been moving. So. Um, what does the current crisis mean for developing countries? I think it's, it's a big problem for developing countries in that they're going to have trouble getting investment back in their countries and getting loans. So as developing companies evolve, using um, you know India as an example or something like that, they're building infrastructure and they're building business. Um, and what they need to do that is dollars or you know currency basically because they need people to make investments there, whether they're equity investments or they're loans to the country or whatever it is, and they can't do and they can't grow without it. And this crisis has scared everybody into pulling back all those investments. So all the big money managers around the world have said, I want to be in cash. Well, if that, they're in cash, that means they're not putting money into an India fund, which is putting money, which is then investing in Indian infrastructure companies or something like that. And it's just kind of across the board. And so it's going to be tough on the emerging countries because they were growing really fast, and now the investment dollars are going to be pulled back hard. Um, and I mean, so I think there's still great opportunities there. I just mean near term, the next year or so, it's, I think it's going to be very tough. Yep. Do you ever see, uh, Wall Street, do you think Wall Street's ever going to recover in the way it was, or do you think we can see any new Um, I think that Wall Street is the, the essence of people trying to figure out how to make money, and that people are always creative and innovative, and they'll figure out ways to make money, and they'll get themselves in trouble again. I think it's very natural. Um, it's a natural part of the capitalistic process. You have very smart people attracted to trying to figure out how to make money, and that's natural, capitalistic, that, that's the way it works. Um, you know, one of the reasons I went to Wall Street when I graduated here is I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, and I was a competitive person, and people said, well, if you want to compete, go to Wall Street. I mean, that's, that's, where, you, that's where you do that. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's just a natural part of the capitalist economy that it draws the very brightest, most uh, you know, energetic, uh, most aggressive people to Wall Street, and, and it always will. And they'll always try to figure out ways to make money, and so you know, they'll get beat up here for a few years, and bonuses won't be what they used to. But five years from now, there'll be some other you know thing going on where people are making millions of dollars. That's just what Wall Street is. Um, and I don't, unless you get rid of capitalism, I don't see how you get rid of uh, Wall Street and, and that process. And it's also human nature. I mean, there are some of us that are aggressive and competitive and want to make money, and we're going to do that to, to the nth degree. And, you know, hopefully maybe we, we can step back away from ourselves sometimes and look at ourselves and say, well, this has gone too far. But if you look at the history of, you know, the world, that's not how it's worked today, so I don't really see how it's going to change in the future, um, even though Wall Street will get in trouble and have problems. Uh, what challenges do you see facing private companies uh, they're just not going to get to go public. They're going to have to figure out ways. Uh, it's just almost impossible for anybody to get to go public at this point. Um, you know, I don't know what the numbers are, but um, you know, a really, really strong private company that everybody's heard of. Um, you know, Visa just came public six months ago. That kind of company that would get to go public again. But you're talking about maybe five, six companies um, until this whole mess kind of works itself out. And so those private companies, the challenge is going to be they basically, they better not have really needed the money. They better need to figure out some way that they can sustain themselves without the, the capital that came in from a public offering. Um, and often, and that's another example of how growth gets stopped. That private company that was going to get the public monies to their public offering was going to then use it to hire new salesmen and buy new equipment or whatever it is, and now they can't. So that growth has to stop. Um, you know, how long that lasts, I don't know, at least six months, maybe a year. Um, and so that just kind of slows everything down. Yeah, my, my dad's probably put up to have some deals. 
Yeah. I mean, maybe some make it through, but you can just pull out the IPO calendar and you probably just won't see anybody on there. Um, you know, because and in addition, you've got, you know, the capital out there is wary of anything new, first of all. And then you also have very established firms like Goldman Sachs is trying to raise $12 billion. And people are saying, I don't know if they can do it. Well, if, you know, if, if, you know, a company like Goldman Sachs, if people aren't going to invest in Goldman Sachs, it's going to be tough to, you know, do a, a relatively new company. Unless they've got kind of a great, you know, great name and they've really got a lot of strength. Um, so I don't know what the exact numbers are, but my guess is that IPOs are down, you know, 75% from where they are usually. Um, Small businesses are telling. I mean, the the nice thing, the good and the bad of small businesses is, I think a lot of them survive because small businesses are scrappy. They know how to get along without a lot of cash. They know, you know, how to basically figure out their cash flow and make it work. But what they will do is they'll stop growing, and when they stop growing, so they'll survive. It's just a question that they won't be able to grow the way they would have. And small businesses are really the engine for a lot of our um, employment. And so, even though you think of Glaxo or IBM as having lots and lots of jobs. When you put together the thousands and thousands of small businesses, they account for a large, large part of our employment. And so they will, in order to be scrappy and survive, they'll do things like you know cut 10% of their workforce and still maintain their uh, profits. They'll basically you know pull back on certain projects. And again, this all basically slows down the growth. And that's kind of the definition of what creates a recession, everybody kind of pulling back on growth, which pulls back on employment. And the question is, how do you basically stop from going too far out of hand in that you know, we had four and five percent unemployment, and we're clearly going to probably eight. You know, but are we going to go to twelve, which would be you know very tough? And at what point do you have real societal problems like homelessness and things like that? You know, that's probably fifteen. But how do you stop it from going too far? Um, that's what the government's trying to do with the bailout and things like that, because you know it can go too far. So. Um, Sometimes recession is good, but sometimes it can go too far. Um, do you think this is going to reduce the amount of like federal aid for like, college students and grants and like yeah. money going towards scientific research, all that kind of stuff? Um, it's a good question. I think that it will probably not because of the political process. So one of the things that we invest in some for-profit um, <coughs> education companies, like you guys have probably seen the ones, um, we're not invested in Apollo, like University of Phoenix and things like that. But they basically all, um, all their students get loans from the government. Well, in the same way that the mortgages are a big mess, the student loans are also a big mess. Not quite as bad as the mortgages, but a big mess. Well, if those student loans start to fail and we start to have big problems where the banks stop making student loans, right? Because when the mortgages failed, all the banks said, okay, no more mortgages, no more business loans. Well, if Sally Mae, who's a big student loaner, and other people who lend money to students say, we're not going to do this anymore. Well, Politically, there's no way in the world the government's not going to bail them out because, you know, everybody's already annoyed that they bailed out Wall Street and supported Wall Street. If it's students, that's going to get support. Um, and so I'm sure that it will get support and the federal government will keep putting monies in there. Um, and other things, I think that mainstream research and things like that probably still gets the money. The small niche research problems probably get to be pulled, start to get pulled back. And the problem is, when you say this, you know, the political process is not going to let student loans stop and it's not going to let large research projects and large infrastructure stop because their, their constituents won't vote for them if that happens, right? So when all the senators and congressmen are voting, they're going to say, there's no way I'm going to vote against student loans, uh, supporting student loans or this new, uh, you know, important research. So they're going to vote for it to do it, but we're voting to do everything, which means that the deficit just goes up and goes up and goes up. And at some point, that becomes a problem. So the tough thing is, you know, if you listen to all the politicians, everybody's cutting taxes. Both parties are cutting taxes. Both parties are spending money. You know, the math just doesn't work there at some point. So you got to figure out, you know, what is going to happen. And the big thing that people don't realize is when you have a recession, tax revenue goes down pretty dramatically because every time someone used to make $500,000, now they make $300,000. Well, they're only paying taxes on $300,000. And capital gains in the stock market, well, you know, 2005, 2006, people made lots of money in the stock market and they paid capital gains tax on it. This year, after this year is over, who's going to pay capital gains? Nobody. So the capital gains tax revenue for the government is going to be a big zero. So the government, when they go into a recession, has less tax revenue come in, 
has all the constituents and the citizens say, we're hurting here financially, cut our taxes, and has all the different groups say, you have to increase societal support. So, you know, how does that really work? You, you, it just doesn't, the math doesn't work, you have to increase the deficit when that happens. And this country can increase the deficit some, but you know, you can't let that go too far out of hand. Vase. Um, the airline industry is a tough one. Um, it's amazing that uh, what, what's uh, I think amazing about the airline industry is that you basically have, if you'd 20 years ago or 10 years ago, if you'd said, should I invest in the airline industry? If you said you should invest in the airline industry because um, people are going to fly more 20 years from now than they do now. So if I'm sitting in 1980 or 1970 or 1990, saying you know I should invest here because people will fly more than they do today. You'd have been 100% right. People fly a lot more than they used to 10, 20 years ago. But the airlines lose money left and right, and they can't make money because they're so competitive with each other on the rates. I mean, it really, when you think about it, it doesn't make sense that you can fly to Vegas and back for like 250 bucks. I mean, you're getting on a big piece of equipment. It costs lots of money for gas. They're flying you over thousands of miles, and they're charging you 250 bucks round trip. It's just way, you know, the competition is just so severe. Um, so I think you know what happens at some point is I think that you'll just have these companies not be able to get investment capital because nobody will at this point lots of investors just won't go anywhere near the airline industry and if they don't get investment capital and they lose money they'll either start to merge with each other and you'll end up with one or two very big airlines that can then be less competitive against each other and all the prices will increase um, or you'll have another government bailout where the government has to come in and start start handling it um, the costs are just extreme the other thing with the airlines is the costs associated from 9-11, all the safety costs. You guys probably don't, maybe don't remember quite as well, but pre-9-11, you know, you used to just walk into an airport and get on the plane, and there was no security there at all. Um, today, we spend billions of dollars on security. The security that you see when you walk through and put your bag through and all those people standing around checking your shoes and all this other stuff, to the security behind the scenes, back behind, you know, checking luggage that goes on and all that kind of stuff. So the money that's been spent in security is just overwhelming and somebody has to pay for that. And the airlines have had to pay for it some and the government's had to pay for it some. So it just made the industry horrible. So I think you'll have mergers and, and or government bailout. But either way, the prices will probably, will probably look back at this period and say, how did we ever get to fly to New York and back from Raleigh-Durham for $112, you know? It, nobody makes money at it. There's no. There's Southwest makes a little bit of money. Nobody else makes any money. Um, so it's gonna be yeah. We're running a time. Sure. Um, I was just wondering. Uh, do you think we're gonna be able to? Like, I guess well, first it's kind of a factor like how long this recession lasts. Right. But um, do you think we're actually gonna be able to get to a point where we'll be back in the young kind of business and start to pay down that debt, or are we really gonna? I mean, that's, it really is a, is a political question that it depends on what the political mood is at the time. I mean, I think it's probably human nature for whenever debt gets out of hand for constituents to then say to the government, you've got to fix this. And, you know, they will then fix it at some point, but that may cause pain in itself. So it's really tough to tell. The deficit is not wildly out of hand at this point. But if you foresaw a five-year recession where I said all the revenues come down and all the uh, societal support comes up, then it, it does continue to grow. And just how far can it go? So, but it's it's that one's really tough to call. So, because um, if you get the economy going, all of a sudden you can get a lot of tax revenue. That's the other side of it. So, if you can tell me where the economy is five years from now, I can tell you whether we have a deficit or not. If it's a big recession, we got a big deficit. If we've got an economy that's growing again nicely, then you'll probably be okay. Yep. Um, I don't know which one's been the least affected, really. Um, I think that you're, what most people believe at this point is that the U.S. was is ahead of the curve, meaning that we've gotten hit already and are kind of in the fourth inning, and Europe is in kind of the second inning. So they're falling after us. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the com common thought is that they're probably six months behind where we are. 
you know, I don't know, China was its kind of an own thing because China was so, growing so fast and so furious that, you know, part of its pullback is just because it was just kind of wild, at, you know, just wildly growing. And so I don't know how much of China is true kind of pulling back with this crisis versus it was just so overpriced that it pulled back because of that. So that's, you know, I don't do that much work on China, just watching it in general, so. Or just real quick, uh, we were talking political earlier. What do you think the effect of the... Uh, Obama-McCain election has on? Um, I, it, it's a tough one. I, I don't think that uh, I don't think either one of them are great economic leaders. Um, so that's that's a problem, I guess. You know, it all comes to personal opinion. My uh, personal opinion is Obama is probably a better leader in general, and so maybe he can basically, even though he's not an economic person, that he can basically, you know, lead others and get people you know, get people around an idea and, and get them going maybe a little bit better. Um, but neither one of them are great economic minds, I would say. They're both, um, I, you know, so I don't know. I'm voting for Obama, but that's, you know. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know that he's any better on the economic side than, than McCain is. Um, so, yep. So if I have an idea, what would I need to do to, to become rich? <laughs> I, th I think the main thing is you got you got to basically work hard, but you have to find something you like, find something that you really enjoy, that you want to, that you don't mind working all the time at. That's the that's the key is basically to, you know, when I was running my company, I worked, for, you know, ran it for eight years. I never took a day off. Um, I mean, I took a day off on the weekends. I never like didn't go in because I was sick or anything like that. And it wasn't because I had to work. It was because I wanted to. I wanted to be there. I was building something. I wanted to get. I wanted to create it. It, was, it has to become your passion. So I think you, if you find something that's your passion and you work hard at it, then you'll be successful. If you do something just to make money, it won't be successful because you'll never just run out and start making money. You will lose money and get beat up in the beginning. You know, we were close to bankrupt and having to quit after our first couple of years. And if we hadn't really wanted to build it and been willing to do that, we could have just quit. So if you, do, if you do something just because you want to make money, you'll quit too easily and you won't ever get there. So you gotta find something you really enjoy and have a good time with. Um, that's my only advice on that one, I guess. Is there an ETF you recommend? <laughs> ETF? Um, you know, I don't, again, I just have to diversify a bunch across. At this point, I think at this point, if you're a long-term investor, meaning you're like putting your money in for five years, then you, can, you probably can't go wrong on a lot of different things because it's so beaten up at this point. Um, at the same time, you know, if you're trying to make money in three to six months, you know, you don't want an ETF anyway. You want a regular stock because that's, the, you know, the ETF is not going to move as much as a regular stock is. So, at the end, investing I think is about finding companies that you think you know about and that you can feel comfortable with. That you think they have a market that you like. That you think they have a position in that market that is sustainable, barriers to entry, all that kind of thing. Um, and then investing in that company, um, you know, as you go. So I think you have to get down to kind of the micro level. ETFs are much more time trying to call long-term goals because when you buy an ETF, you're getting you know 500 companies all in this fund, and you're getting a return based on all 500 of those companies. Um, and that return is in itself just basically going to be washed out by the fact that some will go up and some will go down, and you'll kind of end up with a market-type return. So I have a good answer for the ETF question, I guess. All right, so I think our time is up. Okay. Thank you, guys. Have a good semester. What do you teach? I teach um, entrepreneurship and I teach finance, but not this semester. Yeah.